welcome back to another Maestro's Vibe. My name is Kevin Argetta. And I'm Karina Hernandez. On today's episode, we are joined by Nebraska's 2022 State Teacher of the Year, Lee Perez. On this episode, we talked to Lee about his journey as an educator, how he got to be the 2022 State Teacher of the Year for Nebraska, his advocacy work in that role, and we move into our literature circle where he shares a very intimate story of a student that he once had. And lastly, we end with some advice that he shares with everyone. Tune in and enjoy, folks. All right, folks. Hey, Leah Perez, nice to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fabulous. How are you guys doing? Aloha from Nebraska. <laughs> Aloha. Thank you so much yes. for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right on. So tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, I was uh, born in North Platte, Nebraska. It is about four hours west of Omaha. I was, um, I have five brothers and no sisters. So my mom had oh. six boys. Yeah. So that's okay. literally a one way ticket to heaven right there. <laughs> so uh, you know, I grew up in a small town, parents were divorced, uh, I'm biracial. So my mom's immigration history comes from, you know, it's kind of a plethora of countries. It is mainly European. So it's Ireland, Scotland, and Germany. And then my father's side is our immigrants from Mexico. So grew up in a small town, kind of had a tough life growing up. You know, my father was pretty much absent for 12 years of my life and my brother's life. He was actually a pipe fitter for 40 years before he passed away a few years ago. So he spent a lot of time um, working in the South, you know, states like Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, and things like that. So as a result of not having a father in my life, which, you know, I understand, you know, circumstances happen and things like that. He had to work and he had to provide, you know, I kind of started running with the wrong crowd. So it's kind of surreal. I'm Nebraska teacher of the year because growing up, I hated school. Like I did everything I could to not go to school. I went to class. I slept. I literally did the bare minimum. I barely graduated from high school. And I just remember when I got my diploma in 2000 and I just kind of vowed that I would never, ever want anything to do with education again. And it's crazy because when I was in high school, I applied to one university And I kind of put my one chips in that university and that university rejected me and they rejected me because my grades were so bad. And yeah, it just, you know, ran with the wrong crowd, you know, probably did a lot of things I probably shouldn't have been doing, but you know, it's, it's good because, you know, a lot of, you know, I was at at risk youth basically. So a lot of the students that I've worked with are at risk and I can really empathize with a lot of those kiddos. And I can kind of say, Hey, you know, I've been in your shoes. I've ran the streets. I've, I've ran with a crowd that probably wasn't productive for my future. So I kind of use that as like the inspiration and empowerment piece to say, you know, look at my story, look at how the multiple times I hit rock bottom. And there was always really, really good teachers there to kind of lift me up and be really, really good motivation for me to do better with my life. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit of my background. So wasn't the best start. So <laughs> I can definitely relate to that um, as an at-risk youth as well. And now a high school teacher, I can definitely relate. So thank you for sharing that, that part of your life. And, and now I'm interested. So you didn't get accepted into the one college. Yes. Uh, what, what were your next steps? So I didn't get accepted. I remember I read the letter and I just cried. I mean, I cried and I said, oh my God, it's January. You know, I'm getting ready to graduate high school in a few months. What am I going to do? And I remember my brother who actually went to that university, he was like, you know, I'm 
I'm going to pull some strings. I know the dean. I'm going to get you in. And I remember telling my brother, I appreciate that, but I want to try to do this on my own. So I ended up enrolling in a local community college. And that was kind of a really good thing because truthfully, uh, being fully transparent, just kind of looking at hindsight 2020, I was not ready or mature enough to go to a four-year university. I don't think I would have done very well. And the community college I went to, there were small classes. I was able to get to know the professors. But even my first semester in community college was rocky because I went in kind of with that attitude of, oh, I'm only going to college because, you know, my family wants me to. And so I kind of treated it like high school. And I found out very quickly that it wasn't the case. And a lot of the stuff I was able to get away with in high school, I couldn't in college. (laughs) So I found myself on, you know, because I was on financial aid, I was on FAFSA and it was paying for my school. And I found out very quickly what academic probation was. And Mm. It was kind of when one of my um, counselors sat me down and kind of explained the uncomfortable truth of what could have conspired had I continued down that path. I said to myself, I need to get it together because it wasn't really a lack of intelligence. I was just super lazy. I just didn't want to do any of the work. I just was only doing it because, you know, my brothers were constantly in my ear telling me, you know, like most family members, like, you need to do this. So, yeah, I just uh, got my act together and, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to commit, my, commit myself to my studies and yeah, here I am. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a truly inspiring message and story, you know, as an at youth risk, we serve so many students in public schools that share a similar background and, and bring so much trauma from their lives into the classroom. And as someone that has experienced that firsthand, you're able to empathize, like you said, with that, you know, and, and I'm wondering, Lee, as you were going through your community college journey, is there anybody there that inspires you to get into the education field? Yeah. So, I mean, initially I, you know, people wanted me to be a teacher and I was initially hesitant to do it because I was like, no, I don't want anything to do with school. <laughs> but people were always like, you know, you, you're a really good athlete in high school. You know, you like to coach kids, you do basketball camps, you're really good with kids. Like, why don't you try it out? So I initially was elementary education. I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher and yeah, (laughs) kindergarten teachers are incredible. Mm -hmm. They're all going to heaven. I remember shadowing a few kindergarten classrooms and it just, it just wasn't for me. And so people were just like, well, why don't you try secondary education? You know, it's something you can get into. It's something that they always need coaches. And I just kind of got into it because, you know, People were just constantly like in my ear about it. And I said, you know, why not? Let's give it a try. So got my associate's degree at Mid Plains Community College in North Platte, Nebraska. And then I transferred my credits to the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And then I graduated with my bachelor's of science degree in secondary education in 2007. But when I got my associates in 2003, I was the first um, person in my family to receive a college degree. So I I was pretty proud about that, even though it was because, you know, sometimes we lose sight of the value of community colleges. Mm -hmm. They are very, very valuable. And I encourage a lot of my students to do community colleges. So I'm constantly giving, you know, community colleges a shout out because they are definitely a big, very relevant, important part of our educational system here in the United States. So, yeah. So true. So true. I Took two years, a year and a half after I graduated high school, worked at Bank of America, and then finally realized, like, I can do a lot more with 
a degree and went back to um, Los Angeles Valley College, LAVC, yeah. and it made a huge difference. And, you know, I, I don't have under undergrad debt. And that that's another plus that I think sometimes we don't talk about, how it can really help students financially. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Well, Thank an interesting you. thing is, too, is when I went there, um, Coach Kevin O'Connor, I just want to say thanks, Coach O'Connor. He was the head basketball coach and he approached me and he basically said, will you be my student assistant and I'll give you a tuition waiver. So he paid for two years, 15 hours of school, my books. So I literally had to take no loans out. So I literally got a two year education for free, just being a manager, a student assistant for a men's basketball team. And so I was able to transfer pretty much 99% of my credits from Mid Plains to UNO free of charge. So that saved me from taking out student loans. So yeah, I just want to thank Coach O'Connor and Mid Plains for that. They, um, I think they want me to maybe come back in May and speak at their graduation. And I would be honored to because, you know, like I said, community colleges are sometimes they don't get the credit that they deserve. And they're absolutely they were a very, very important part of my journey as an educator and now a state teacher of the year. Yeah, that that that's incredible. And, you know, Lee, this is our first time that we get to talk here. Um, we've been exchanging so many messages through Twitter, yes. <laughs> through, through email and, and hearing your story. I'm like, hey, this guy, if we were in the same state, we would be really close friends. I'm, I'm a basketball. We would coach. be surfing all yeah. the time. <laughs> we, we'd, be playing, we'd be playing basketball all the time. Um, I love I'm, ball. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. I, I'm a basketball coach over here in Hawaii. And, um, you know, sharing the same background as you as a Latinx minority it is just so nice to hear of these of these triumph triumphant stories because I think a lot of times in our media Latinx stories are are portrayed in a very negative light so we need to uplift these positive stories to show all of the kids that success is in their grasp and while you were going through college and then graduating from Nebraska Omaha um, with your teaching degree Take us through that journey. You, you did you start off as an ESL teacher? You know, you I think you started off in 2003. Is that correct? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, 2020 comes around, and you're the state teacher of the year for Nebraska. So yeah, I was not. Uh, I graduated with my certification. I hold two teaching endorsements in the state of Nebraska: seven through twelve social sciences. So that certifies me to teach everything from American history, world history, sociology, psychology, economics. Um, anthropology, you know, pretty much any social science discipline, religions. So I got my um, 7 through 12 certification through UNO. And so I taught for a um, dual language school on the English side for 12 years, a school called RM Mars Magnet Center. And when I started there, a lot of a dual language is a program model where English language learners are enrolled in the program. And it is a very, very fabulous program. I absolutely miss it. And so I, I basically started having, I, I basically taught English language learners my entire career, because when I started there, I had a bunch of kids from, you know, Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador and places like that. And it was really cool. And then my wife, who I got to give credit to, she's like, you know, you really like teaching English language learners. Like, she's like, well, why don't you teach some summer school gigs for the district? And I really liked it. And she's, and our district actually had a, um, free ESL endorsement through a local university to where I got 15 hours free tuition, and then I could add it to my teacher certification. So I did that in 2019. 
And then I applied for a transfer and then I accepted that at um, more, my current school, which is Alice Buffett Magnet Middle School. And as you can see, Alice Buffett Magnet Middle School has been great because I've only been there a short amount of time and now I'm Nebraska Teacher of the Year. So it's been a great journey. I absolutely love teaching English language learners. They are just phenomenal families, students, and communities. They bring with them just a plethora of rich cultures, norms, values, and traditions that just are, it's just heartwarming. It's just, it truly is an honor and a privilege to have them in my classroom and to know that I'm putting them on a path to where they can be successful people here in the United States of America. Yes, yes. And they're all are just diverse with different stories, like you mentioned. I am an English learner. I was born in Los Angeles, but um, my parents, I don't say dropped me off, but <laughs> left me with grandma in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I came back to the U.S. when I was 11 to start sixth grade again. And I just remember encountering some different teachers, a few teachers who were like, you are not from here. Yeah. I don't need to teach you. I don't care about you, blah, blah, blah. And then there were other teachers who were like, I don't know your story. You seem like a smart kid. I'm going to do the best that I can to help you. Absolutely. And then there were other teachers who they were like, oh, wait a minute. You were born here. Oh, okay. So this is your right. Then let me teach you. Yeah. But then I'm like, if I wasn't, would you still have that same mentality? So I remember encountering all of these different educators throughout my life. And then now that I am teaching high schoolers, I moved more towards teaching English learners. And I'm currently getting my certification in um, the TESOL certification so that I can continue to do that. Because uh, when I first got here eight years ago, I started in special education. And I just remember the English learners were like the last line that no one really wanted. Yeah. And then now I'm like, no, I will take that line. That will be my line because I, it's so amazing to see students come into the program, not speaking the language. And then years later can have a conversation with you in yeah. English. It's, oh, it's so powerful. That is, that is probably the best part of my job. And it is just, uh, first of all, congratulations. TESOL's awesome. So I'm actually 15. So those hours that I took, they were graduate hours and I'm actually 15 credits short, which was five classes short of a TESOL master's from Concordia University. So I'm going to speak to them in a few months and I'm going to talk about um, finishing my master's with them because it's a completely online program. But yeah, it is just so cool because, you know, when you walk into my classroom, you can have 10 different countries and 18 to 20 plus languages spoken it is just absolutely incredible. And just not only that, just knowing what a lot of these kids come through, sometimes you just like think of like, you know, something as simple as like having a roof over your head, you know, like the privilege that we all take for granted or being able to go to school. Some of these kids come from war-torn countries, like, you know, for example, Afghanistan, where, you know, girls aren't allowed to school. And if they do go to school, not only do they risk their lives, but the lives of their families. And the sad thing is, is sometimes I think people need to understand that like every student has a story. And when I hear what you had to go through, you know, that's sad because, you know, my father growing up, he kind of went through some, some racism and discrimination like that when he, him and his family came here from Mexico. So, you know, part of my role as Nebraska State Teacher of the Year is to recruit, recruit and retain more teachers of color because representation does matter because it's empowering to see somebody that looks like you. It's empowering to see somebody that speaks the same language. It's empowering to see someone that maybe comes from some of the same 
immigration struggles. It's empowering to see someone that, you know, just knows through some of the struggles that you've went through. And, you know, when I applied for state teacher of the year, I noticed a lack of diversity. And I noticed that there was not an ESL teacher that had ever won the award. So I remember telling my wife one night, we just went and got coffee because sometimes she had always, my wife is my biggest supporter and I love her very much. And she's just been my rock. And she would always say, you know, you were so active in your association, in your school, in your community. Why don't you be teacher of the year? And I used to say, nah, I don't have time for that. I'm so busy. <laughs> then I just noticed the lack of diversity. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I remember saying, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to win. And I just knew that when I applied, like, I just knew that if you apply, you'll get this and your message is important. And sometimes, you know, I was speaking at, you know, the University of Nebraska Lincoln a few weeks back. And I had a student come up to me. He was a student teacher in Lincoln and he's from the Philippines. And he said, you know, I just want to thank you because I used to be an English language learner from the Philippines. And when I came here, I had a lot of teachers that were super intolerant towards me. And what you said to me and all my colleagues really resonated with me. And that's something that all of them need to hear. And he just said, as someone who comes from that perspective of a language learner, I appreciate you teaching us the facts about how language works and how culture works. So it's good to know that I'm making an impact because like I said, no state teacher of the year in my state has ever had the message that I've had. And I think it makes my message more important moving forward. Agreed. You embody the saying, sitting on the shoulders of giant. You are the giant. You yeah. are the giant, which these new educators are going to be able to stand on your shoulders. And you are a giant because there were giants before you, you know, and I think that that is so powerful. Whenever we're able to see who those people were that came before us, we're able to honor those values and carry those forward, you know, and you bring up a really important fact right now. You bring up this topic of diversity. And when we look at the national teacher of the years, right? We were talking about this before we got on this call, that there is a very diverse pool yes. out of the final four contestants. Yes. Yes. I love it. And I just want to say good luck, Autumn. Good luck, Whitney. Good luck, Kurt. Good luck, Joe. Uh, I've talked to all of them, but Joe, I, have, I haven't had a chance to talk to Joe Walsh from Pennsylvania, but I actually did a Zoom with Autumn Rivera from Colorado. And I just told her, like, you know, your voice and your advocacy is just so powerful right now. But again, that's America. That's what America looks like. So when I saw that, I was super, super happy. But just not only the four finalists, just the 2022 cohort is super diverse. And, but again, that's what America looks like. You know, it is a melting pot and a plethora of various cultures and rich traditions from all over the world. And I am one of four ESL teachers that are state teachers of the year. And so it's so awesome talking to these other English language learner teachers from these other states and just getting ideas from them and giving them ideas. And it's just absolutely incredible talking to these people and just being able to share similar, you know, successes, but also similar challenges that we face because, you know, as you know, public education right now is under attack or in a teacher shortage. And, you know, I told my state teachers of the year, like our year is important because we are faced with that challenge and we are faced with, you know, this toxic negativity that you're seeing on social media. And I almost call it a pandemic of um, toxic negativity because, you know, social media is just one of those things where it's in everybody's ear. And it's tough when you give these speeches because, you know, it, you know, it's like 
you know, you're trying to like keep things positive when, you know, there's a very negative view of education. And I find that very disheartening. And I always tell my state teachers of the year, I am doing everything in my power to change that and to advocate for this profession because it is important because we do have a lot of diverse learners from all over the world in marginalized communities that need to be advocated for and fought for moving forward in public schools is what's going to do that for us. So for teachers who are listening and they're wondering, what will be um, some advice or what is something that you you felt so strong about that, that you were doing to, to feel confident to apply and then to then get it? Could, could you share that with us? Yeah, just, you know, being teacher of the year, it's not just about, you know, you know, getting in Nebraska, they give you this, this apple. It's really heavy too. It's like marble apple. It's like, it's heavy. I could do like bicep curls with it. It's more about, (laughs) it's more, it's more about the accolades. It's, it's work. It's when you apply for state teacher of the year, just in any state, it's work. And some states are different. Some states, they give them sabbatical. Um, in Nebraska, I have to teach full time and then I have to fulfill the duties. And again, I just got done doing my 22nd or 23rd speaking engagement. I just booked three more on Saturday, but it's important work because, you know, right now, you know, I've had people email me from other colleges and say, you know, it's, it's really refreshing to hear a positive spin, you know, because like I said, I teach full time. I'm on various committees on the national state and local level you know, I have a personal life too, but it's just one of those things where if you want to make change, you have to be the change. You can't just sit on the sideline and do nothing. You know, it's kind of like a basketball analogy. If you want, if you want to get in there and score some points, you got to get in there and do the work. You know, you got to put in the hours, you know, you got to shoot the hoops, you got to do the layups, you got to do the drills. It's just not going to come for you. So I've put in a lot of work the last couple months and, you know, I'm on fire. I do. I feel like I'm on fire and I'm not going to stop because, you know, I just look at whenever I speak, you know, I think of my kiddos, I think of their lives and what they need. And in a time where everything is polarized and there's a lot of divisiveness and everything is politicized that shouldn't be, I think of my babies that come from different countries that need me to be a voice for them. And that is kind of what I do when I move forward is I say, I have to do this for them because it's not just about me, it's about them. It's about that collectivist ideology of we're in this together and we're not trying to do this on an individual basis. So I always think, what can I do to be their voice? Because at the end of the day, being their voice is the most important part of being state teacher of the year, is advocating for your children, which is our most valuable asset as teachers in public school education. <clears throat> so, so it sounds like, you're saying that if any teacher feels like they are an advocate for students, then they could be or apply to be the teacher of the year. Yes, absolutely. And I, I encourage people of color to apply too. But the thing is, is like when you apply, you got to know that it's work. You got you to go into it having a mission and an objective mm-hmm. and wanting to get things done. And that's what I'm doing. But I mean, most of the point, like when I applied for teacher of the year, they asked me like, what would my message be? As the, K, as the PK-12 representative for the state of Nebraska. And I said, kindness should be our new pandemic. Like COVID-19 has the ability to be a pandemic that can create death and just horrible things within communities. Kindness can be another pandemic that can be the great, great equalizer that can unite us. 
So I'm always trying to go out. And that's the thing, you know, I'm very transparent when I give my speeches. I always tell, you know, student teachers and education majors, yeah, things are tough, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And I said, you know, sometimes you have to go out and you have to, if kindness is not there, go out and create it. If love is not there, go out and create it. If change is not there, go out and create it. Because I used to be a naysayer. I used to say, you know, this doesn't affect me. You know, why should I care? But now I'm always telling people like, what are you doing to change that? Like, when's the last time you wrote a senator? When's the last time you called your school board? When's the last time you sat down with the committee and tried to advocate for things? And I've been on several committees where, you know, some changes happen, but it's it's a step. And so sometimes, you know, you got to get out and you got to attend meetings that it's kind of like Zooms, you know, I don't know how many of these I've been on <laughs> where I've been in meetings with like, you know, the commissioner of education, my department of education, my union, but I'm trying to create change. But I'm also trying to create change for our marginalized communities because, you know, COVID-19 exposed a lot of inequities within the United States. It really was the great revelation of how America works. And sometimes people say, well, when are we going to go back to normal? And I don't really like that word normal because, you know, I want a normal where kids aren't homeless. I want a normal where racism is a really bad thing. I want a normal where equity is universal for all people. I want a normal where teachers and public schools are viewed at the highest esteem like other countries. So I say, that's the normal I want. I want a normal where kids can go out and speak Spanish and not worry about people saying horrible things to them about speaking a language that they were taught. That's the normal I'm fighting for. You know what I'm saying? But I can't do this work alone. So I always tell people when I give my speeches, like, I need help because I'm only one person. That is powerful. That's awesome. If there's no aloha, go out and create it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, you, you got to, you know, it's, you got to go out and you just got to create things. And I, I always tell people, no matter what language you speak, whether it's Spanish, Arabic, Tajik, Russian, Dari, Pashto, Shamali, these are just some of the languages that are spoken in my ESL classroom, like the language of love is a language we can all speak, Mm -hmm. we can all understand, and we should all learn. And I tell people all the time, the language of love is something that can unite all people. And that's really my message is that, you know, right now, just do what's good for the collective community. And that's all I'm trying to do. And sometimes people will say like, you know, like, well, things are bad right now. And I, I always tell them, I'm like, listen, Being happy doesn't mean you have to go to work every day with a smile on your face. Being happy is being able to go to work, face the challenges, and learn how to collectively and positively problem solve things. And that's what I'm doing. Yes. And as you are continuing to problem solve and advocating for the most marginalized communities, you know, do you, you, you have some source of inspirations, I'm, I'm sure, right? And yeah. something that us as educators always have inspiration from is, is reading. I think, I think reading yeah. is something that all educators um, like, even if it's audiobooks, you know, some people yeah. prefer audiobooks, like our prior guest PJ4 uh, mentioned. Um, but with that, is there anything that you're reading currently that is kind of fueling your journey or fueling your passion even more? I've been so busy. Honestly, I haven't started reading anything. But one thing I do like reading is sometimes um, one of my students from um, Thailand, she's from the Korean population. She was in a refugee camp for 12 years. One time she wrote me like a small little mini journey 
uh, journal of kind of like what her life was like in a refugee camp in Thailand. And she was there for 12 years. And some of the stuff she wrote was just so incredibly sad, but it was powerful. And it just makes my job more important because, you know, like today I gave a speech at, you know, UNO and, you know, I said something as simple as like, when you take a drink of water, like, you know, that's privilege because like in some of these refugee camps, like clean water, even if the military allows you to have it, you know, you have to have permission to get things like that. So like basic needs like shelter and, and clean water and even food, a lot of times in these refugee camps are next to nothing. And she was there for 12 years. And so that was one of the last things I read that was just like super powerful. And it kind of made me, you know, it just, it got me like a really emotional because these kids are so, so open and transparent and they tell you everything. And it's, some of it is really, really sad. And it just makes you want to fight harder for these kiddos and advocate more because the circumstances that they come from, it's just amazing that she was in a camp like that for 12 years. And I can tell people all the time, you know, you can study poverty, you can write a doctoral dissertation on it. You can, you can do all the academic, you know, research and, and stuff that colleges and universities make you do, but until you've lived it, you've tasted it, you've smelt it, you've felt it, you don't know what poverty is. So this past summer, I spent um, a few weeks in a little village outside of Mexico city, because my wife has a lot of family in Mexico. And I learned very quickly that water was a privilege. You know, if it didn't rain, we didn't shower. And I remember just being there thinking like, man, this is very uncomfortable. And I had only been there a couple of days. I mean, eventually I got used to it, but I'm just like thinking, imagine this as your life every day. My wife used to show me like, oh, when I was younger, this is where I would shower. This is where we'd cook. Seeing that perspective was so powerful because now when kiddos come up to me and say, this was my life. I can say, I got a small taste of that. So I always tell people, travel the world and go into these uncomfortable situations because it's going to teach you not just how to be a better teacher, but a better human being. And that is more important than anything. If you're a good human being, you're going to be a heck of a teacher. Love that. Wow. That's powerful. We experience that a lot here with students that come from marginalized countries. You know, um, I migrated to Hawaii um, from Virginia. And when I first got here, I didn't really know any other people that were from the Marshall Islands. And there's a big population here from the Marshall Islands, um, all over Micronesia, Kershaw, Pompeii. And something that I quickly learned is that those students, although they've experienced so much trauma and so much poverty, they smile through it all. Yes, they do. And if if I can't get up in the morning and be happy or at least be content where, where I am with so much privilege, then I really have to ask myself, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, just knowing that these kids get up and come to school every day, probably hungry, experiencing a lot, you know, living in poverty. There, you, you have so many people living in, in one under one roof in, in many circumstances. Yes. And, and they still come and try their best, you know. And and for me as an educator. I have to hold that in the forefront of my mind whenever I'm interacting with any student and specifically with students that come from marginalized communities. Yeah. I mean, I left Mexico with, a, you know, it's just, like I said, I'd read about poverty. I'd wrote papers on it in college, but I mean, it made like everything I've ever done on research 
completely irrelevant because I had actually experienced it firsthand. And it's just, it was just so powerful. And it was kind of sad because, I mean, I look at my wife and her family's journey to this country. It wasn't easy. And a lot of that trauma that our kids come from is what's called generational trauma. And a lot of collectivist cultures, they're taught to internalize, you know, generational trauma. They're, we're taught to just, oh, put up with it and deal with it and not to express emotions and, and get help and things like that. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, kids will come to school and, and, and they'll put on a face and, you know, oftentimes, you know, if we're going through trauma, we do the same thing, but it's just kind of one of those things, just living that experience for a couple months really just made me realize like, you know, just having a house right now with the roof, with running water is something that I take for granted every day, every single day. And that truly is privilege. And that is something that we should all appreciate. And when you see what's going on in the world right now, you know, when you see what's going on with generational trauma and generational poverty, you know, you got to understand that our kids are coming from, that's just one aspect or one challenge, water, that kids are facing every day. And it's just, it's one of those things where when, as an ESL teacher, when kids get here, you know, I'm constantly advocating for students to have, you know, clean water and a meal. And, you know, I've worked with my school before and my school is awesome, by the way, Buffett Middle School is just an amazing school. And we've worked to get kids money to eat and things like that, you know, because sometimes as an ESL teacher, you're not just a teacher, you know, you're, you're literally their, their champion and their voice, because unfortunately there are people in this world that will take advantage of marginalized communities. And a lot of that has to do with the language barrier. And that's where we need to be there to, to give a voice to the people that don't have a voice. Yes. I am. You just inspire me to go into work this week full of love and just to be a champion for, for our students because that creates change and that will affect the next generation and generations down the road because, you know, I want to be that teacher that makes a difference. So I'm really inspired by your story, by everything that you've shared with us today. And I'm wondering what other advice do you have for either parents, community members, students, and teachers? Just be a good person that wants to do what's right. I mean, it's literally as simple as that. I mean, at the end of the day, I know that, you know, everybody is recovering from this pandemic. You know, I've experienced some trauma and some depression from it, just from some of the stuff I've seen. But just at the end of the day, do what you believe is the right thing to do and do what you can to help your communities and uplift them. Because, you know, right now, Sometimes something as simple as like, you know, sometimes you just got to like read the room with kids, you know, and sometimes kids come and they're sad about things and things like that. And sometimes you just have to put away that amazing lesson plan that you did. And you kind of have to just give a kid a hug because at the end of the day, they're a human being, you know, they're not just a number. And I get, you know, school's important. I get, you know, there's testing, there's data, there's assessments and things like that. But sometimes, you know, kids need to know that you view them as a human being and not as a student ID number. And that's the best piece of advice I can give it because I know I would not want to be viewed as a student ID number. I would want to be viewed as a human being. Thank you so much, Lee. So you heard it here. Be a good human being. Be a good human being. 
with that, folks, this has been another Maestro's Vibe. We appreciate y'all for tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lee, all the way from Nebraska. I hope you enjoyed your time with us, and we hope to continue this conversation at some later point and yes. catch up with you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've never been to Hawaii, so if I come to Hawaii, we'll look you guys up for sure. Absolutely. What island are you guys on? We are on Hawaii Island. Same island as Whitney, but we're on the other side. We are on the west side. She's on the east side. Yes, they are. uh, She's actually on a plane. They're all on a plane to Washington, D.C. right now for their uh, National National Teacher of the Year interviews. So, Again, I just want to say good luck to the finalists. Um, You know, I know they can only pick one person, but whoever they give it to, it will be a phenomenal person that will represent um, teachers all across the United States very, very well. So thank you again for having me. I do appreciate it. Until next time, folks. And good luck, Whitney. Yes.